Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Debbie Yost with Remax in Casa Grande, Arizona. Last year, she and her team closed 251 transactions with a total sales volume of $33 million. Her average sales price was $131,000, of which 42% were buyers and 58% were sellers. She also manages 128 rental units with $125,000 in monthly rents. She has an 18-member team, five buyer specialists, four listing partners, one receptionist, one closing manager, one listing manager, two property managers, one photographer, one sign installer, one partner, and one team leader. Debbie Yost is the team leader of the Yost Realty Group. She's been an agent for 35 years. In her best year, 2005, she sold 330 homes worth $56 million. She sold about 10,000 homes in her career. In this call, Debbie talks about how she got a fast start in real estate, why getting education early is so important, how she went from listing 125 homes per year by herself to setting up a seventh-level business that runs without her so she can travel the world what systems are, why they're important, and how you set them up. How to create harmony in a family-run business with a wife, husband, and daughter at the helm. Why there's no such thing as a true real estate emergency. How to pay for your kids' or grandkids' college and even retirement while they're young. How to prioritize and work on the highest dollar productive activity first. Creating happiness, loyalty, and longevity with your team members. How to hire the right person and what to do during the 90-day probation period. Why it takes two years for a new agent to learn the mechanics and finesse of sales. Team dynamics and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Debbie. Thank you, Mike. Hey, Debbie, it's great to have you here. Debbie, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Uh, I think I grew up, Mike. I started in the business when I was 20, so I'm dating myself now. So I, 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 I grew up. I grew up. I was an art major in college and moved from Pennsylvania with my husband, Joe, back in 1977 and got here and, and decided that I really wanted to work in an industry where I would be rewarded financially for the amount of effort I was willing to put into each transaction. And so really at the age of 20, I, I jumped into real estate. You said you moved from Pennsylvania to Arizona when you were 20? Mm-hmm. Yep. Got married to my high school sweetheart, Joe, and, and together we run the business. And, and I want to interrupt you and just say, Mike, 
I didn't sell all those houses last year. Our team sold that many houses. <laughs> We've got a great right. team, and and it's not me. It's it's our team and our business. So so yes, I I grew up. Um, we were high school sweethearts. Got married, wild hair, moved across the country from Pennsylvania to Arizona, where we we knew one person who shortly left thereafter and moved back to Pennsylvania, and, and we stayed here and, and made our way. So you didn't know anyone in Arizona. You moved to a new market and had to start fresh, and there are a lot of people listening in that position, so I wanted to, to set that stage for them. Now, when you got started in Arizona at 20 years old, did you have a fast start or a slow start? Hmm. You know, back in those days, if, if I mean, we're talking average sales price then in the 40s. So, you know, selling a million dollars worth of real estate was a big deal then um, in one year. And I think I started in the summer, so I didn't make it that first six months, but I definitely made it the second year. So back then, gosh, interest rates, you know, were in the early 80s. They were back in the 16, 17% rate. So I, I think that Compared to other people, I got a fast start. It wasn't fast enough for me, however. If I add that up, right, 40000 or so average price and a million dollars in your second year or, second, or your first full year, that's about 25 closings for your first year. Does that sound right? You know, it's a long time ago, but I'll, I'll, I'll buy that number. I'll buy that <laughs> number. <good. laughs> it's been a long time. That is a pretty quick start. Can you tell us how you got that quick start? That's that's quite a few transactions for your first year out. You know, I made a commitment that I, I was going to do well. I, I had no doubts that I was going to do well. It, I, I lived, breathed, slept real estate. I remember that first year waking up in the middle of the night, sitting up talking, and, and Joe would wake me up and say, what's going on? And I was selling real estate in my sleep. So <laughs> how did... And I think that happens to a lot of people. I, I'm a high D personality, so when I jump into something, I, I tend to go all in. Back then, what did I do? I, uh, I started seeking out training right away, right away. I started listening to the folks that were, were doing seminars back at that time. I was hungry for information. And I remember my first year, I made a commitment to take 10% of whatever I earned and reinvest it in myself. And what that meant primarily in those first few years was education. So I went to everything that I could go to. I listened to tape series. I read books. I mean, Tommy Hopkins was a big salesperson at that time. I learned scripts. I remember knocking on doors. I did crazy things like the week of Halloween. I dressed up like a clown and I went door knocking and that I handed out candy. So I did reverse trick-or-treating. So that's a long time ago, Mike. You're bringing back memories. A lot of walking around the streets there. As you mentioned, you were, you were committed and it worked. I was really committed. And I think the thing that I've learned so strongly and we really impress upon our team members now is that it's a real honor to serve people with their housing needs. And if we look at any person that we're speaking to in that light, how can I serve you? And I may not be able to serve you with a transaction today, but you'll remember how I treated you and you'll know somebody at work or a family member or a friend or a neighbor that has a real estate need. And you'll say, hey, I met this lady and she really helped me or she gave me some good advice. 
And so I think if there's any guiding, well, I have a few guiding principles. That's one of them, Mike. It's that I have the opportunity to serve anyone that I meet with their housing needs. And it's an honor. And when you have that belief structure, I think people want to reciprocate and help you. Debbie, I know there's a, there's another principle that you use that's related to what you just said, and I think I'd like to bring it out at this point. When we were going back and forth in our preparation, you sent me, uh, and I'm just going to quote your statement, it said, personally, I'm always looking for the long-term relationship rather than just focusing on the individual transaction. I think a lot of agents, they, they get nervous that they're not going to have an income stream, and they start looking for the deal, looking for the deal. What advice would you have for them? It goes back to a belief that what we're thinking about and what we focus on expands. So if we're focused on need to deal, need to deal because I've got to pay my mortgage, need to deal because I've got to eat, it's kind of like body odor. It seeps out of us and people feel it and people don't care about what you know. They care and they remember about how you make them feel. And once they feel comfortable with you and that there's an honest interaction going on, then they'll pay attention to what you're saying. Does that make any sense, Mike? It does. It does. I, I like the way you phrase that. I like the body odor comment the best. It just kind of oozes out of you in an awful way. You know, it really does. I can tell what's going on in my office by the way the people in our office walk around. I might be on the phone and not be able to know what happened to one of the salespeople, one of our admin people. I can see by the way they're walking that something's going great or something's not going great. And that comes across. People say you see dollar signs in people's eyes. I mean, you know it when you walk into a furniture store and they're all at the front like like piranhas there or you walk onto a car lot and they're running to try to beat the other person to come and and sell you a car. It's a totally different situation than serving somebody, and it really does come through. How long have you been in the business? 35 years, Mike. 35 years, and I'm really happy to say that this year, Joe and I um, are celebrating 20 years of our own company. We opened Remax Casa Grande in, in 1995, so... 35 years in the business, married 38 years, 20 years with our company. Yeah, I think we're around. I think we're going to stay. What do you think? <laughs> I think you've made it. I think you made it. <laughs> I think so. I uh, think we're good. here. <laughs> well, well, Debbie, how many homes did you and your team sell last year? Oh, thanks for saying that it was the team because it really is the team that's successful. My job is to serve them so that we serve the clients and that we have the opportunity to assist. And so last year, we closed 251 homes and 58% of those were seller-side transactions and the balance, 42% were buyer. That's for about $33 million. Our prices in central Arizona really took a significant hit with the great recession, and we're still not back to full value. We're on track this year for about 300 transactions and about $44 million. so thankfully prices are coming back. We also have a large property management department, and so we manage about, normally we're at about 140 to 150, and we're, we're helping some clients transition some of their assets right now. So right now we're at about 128 single-family homes that we manage with a monthly gross rental income of just over 125000 In your best year, how many homes did you sell, and what year was that? 
gosh, I think that our best year was back in the mid 2000s, and I think we had uh, oh about 330 for about 56 million. That was our best year. Now. Since that time, I think we had one year where we did just a tad over 400 transactions. That was during the heavy REO and short sale years. And and those were some tough business years. We helped a lot of people, but it sure wasn't fun. And very, very few, I think less than 10 people that year had equity. So the rest were short sales and bank-owned properties. It was a tough year. In your career, how many people do you think you've helped? How many homes do you think you've sold? You know, I wish I had kept great records when I first started. Those metrics weren't important to me then. We know that we've had over 5,000 sales since 2000. So uh, since we started, you know, back in 80, 5,000 since the year 2000, I'm thinking for certain we had over 10,000 transactions. That is fabulous. Congratulations. Thank you. It's kind of fun. You know, we, we work with people. We get to sell their kids a home. And now we're at a place where we're helping their grandkids buy homes. And that's really fun because then you're really impacting a family. Right. Three generations. Mm-hmm. Debbie, when we were preparing for this, you gave me a bunch of great quotes and I want to go into one of them. I asked you why you're successful and what you came back with was success comes to those who get in front of the inevitable. What do you mean by that? Oh, that's a great quote, and it's one of the things that we live by. So obviously, in a 35-year career, market conditions have changed. And so I believe that it's really important to see what's going on, not just in the real estate industry, but also in the economy, in the world, in my local market, and say, what are the trends that are influencing consumers and people right now? And so as I think back over some of those years, I can remember years where we were doing a lot of REO properties 20 years ago. Then we went through that shift, and as our community grew, we represented a builder for 15 years and did a lot of new construction, and we had a real great impact in helping build new communities within our our city. And then, of course, you know, we had those great boom years with new construction, a lot of production building, and then we could see where we were hitting a peak, and and we knew a downturn was going to come. So then getting in front of the REO-type business, understanding and becoming experts on how to handle short sales and help people. And now, thankfully, we're back in a retail environment again, and uh, it's one of the reasons that you know we do so much in property management is there's a real need for people to have professional management services because there are more renters in in the market and have been for the last few years. So getting in front of what's happening not only with housing but also in other industries. What constitutes great customer service right now? How do people use the Internet? Seeing the trends that are out there and then positioning yourself to get in front of the inevitable. I wish I knew who wrote that quote. I love it. It's, it's something I look at daily. You're in Casa Grande, Arizona. Where is that located? It's right in the middle of Phoenix and Tucson. So we're about 45 minutes 50 minutes south of the southern edge of Phoenix, about 70 minutes north of Tucson. Now, if you live in a metropolitan area, you live in the East Coast, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But here in Arizona, water is really critical. So we don't have as much 
privately owned land in the state of Arizona, as many other states do. We have large areas that are owned either by the federal government, the state government, or Indian reservations. So if you would drive from Phoenix to Casa Grande, which is about a 45-minute freeway drive, you're going to pass through an Indian reservation and quite a bit of desert. And so our communities are located around water, which is a, a real critical piece. So we're right in the middle of Phoenix and Tucson, central desert, about 310 sunny days a year. Do you know what the population is there in Casa Grande? I do. It's right at 55,000. And in our winter months, we are a bedroom community for winter residents from the Midwest and from Canada. We're not the high-end winter playground. We're the playground for middle-class America. They get to come play golf, ride bike, walk, just have a great time in the winter here. What percentage of your population do you think is snowbirding, coming in and then going back out of your market? Quite a bit of population. I think we swell probably with another twenty to 25,000 folks in the winter, and that's not an official government statistic. We serve a lot of small communities right around us um, with shopping and things like that. So we really do increase in the winter months, and usually only about 2% of those folks who become winter visitors here, winter residents, will eventually buy a single-family home. A lot of them, we've got some great big RV parks, et cetera, in the area. We're an affordable winter escape. Debbie, you built a seventh-level business that can basically run autonomously, you know, basically without you there on a day-to-day basis. How did you do that? Uh, I'm going to say painfully because as a very high D, I was also a super control freak. These days I can say that I'm a recovering control freak. <laughs> so it, it really came out of necessity. Joe and I, I mentioned um, my husband and I worked together. We created quite a successful business. And as your business grows, and especially if it's a couple, when you want to get out of town, it's it's really difficult to get out of town and, and have some real quality time if you're still servicing all of your clients. So we, first of all, brought on the most incredible administrative person long before most people were were hiring office managers or team leaders. This was before the book was written on how, how to build a seventh-level business. And when we invited her to join us, she said, what's my title? And we said, we don't know. And she said, what will I be doing? And we said, we don't know. Come, trust us, we'll build this together. <laughs> and she did. And so our focus was impeccable client service and Long before computers became mainstream, we invested. In fact, I think we had the first Pentium in Arizona. We certainly had the first digital camera shipped to Arizona. And those were some bleeding edge days. You know, I remember paying $700 like 20 years ago to have an IT expert come in on a Saturday and get my printer hooked up to our new network because we were printing to a fax machine. (laughs) So those are some bleeding edge days, but we knew that it was important to be able to save information about a client so that if Joe or I were gone, either one of us and one of our clients called in, any one of us on our team would instantly know where they were in that transaction or what was going on. 
I think that's really a frustration of a client, especially when a team, if they call in with a question and the person that answers the phone cannot assist them. So we invested in technology early on. It was very critical. We were some of the first top producer users back before it even was Windows-based. So that communication was really critical. And then we started building a team. We, we brought on a first buyer specialist in a similar way. What will I be doing? We're not sure. And we trained her in a way that she learned exactly exactly how we treated people and how to do business. And, and by the way, just as an aside, when a new team member joins our team, they have one-on-one training with us for the first 45 days. They don't get to talk to a client by themselves for at least 45 days. And, and people say, really? Are you kidding? Isn't that restrictive? Well, you know, doctors practice on dead people for a long time before they work on real life people. And so we feel the same way. So going back, um, we started building the team. And then as we got busier and busier and busier, I, I followed that same route. You know, we were working the 70 hours a week. Our daughter got off the bus at our office and we'd stay there, you know, until seven or eight at night. She did her homework there. We ate there. And There was a point back in 1999 where I had to have some surgery and I postponed it for six months because I said I couldn't take the time off. And that was really the height of my craziness. That taught me right there that I was not indispensable. And if I had created a position where I was indispensable, I was really jeopardizing the success of our business when everything depended on me. So that was the point where we hired our first listing specialist to assist me because I was such a control freak that I was the only one that I allowed to take listings on our team. I'd take 125 listings a year by myself. So really getting to understand what my highest dollar productive activities were, creating a system where everyone makes notes about what's going on with a transaction so that anyone can assist anybody else on the team is really the basis. You mentioned that you've got two things going on here. You've got people coming in to help and you're training them. And you've also got these systems that you've developed to make sure everybody stays on track. And what you mentioned was communicate with one another so that they can they can work the other's business. They can help each other. Say if one of the people were out, you've got all these notes in your system. So you mentioned Top Producer was one of the systems you've used. What other systems did you use to, to keep everything moving forward in case one of the folks got ill or wasn't able to work? You know, that's a great question. And and so those systems are the foundation of our business today. We believe that if we do anything more than once, we create a system. And we believe that 95% of issues that come up are system-related rather than people-related. So, gosh, we started with Top Producer first. And, and, you know, we've changed back and forth a few times on CRMs. We're back with Top Producer at this moment. I don't think there's any one perfect solution allowing our team to be able to access everything remotely while they're out from their phone or their tablet is critical. So that's, that's why we're still back there. So we use, you know, I think we use probably some of the same tools that other people do. I think that CRM 
is the basis for our organization's success. All of our listing management, transaction management, rental management, everything has plans and they're launched that way. And everybody's connected, so every member of our team is on there. I mean, it goes down to every section of our business. When when a, when one of our listing agents brings a listing in, the file goes specifically to one person who does this, this, and this. Part of it gets scanned and emailed to our VA in Oregon. Part of it goes to our sign person. So everything, you know, another one goes to the newspaper for advertising. Everything is built with a system, with a date, with follow-up checklists, and everything is online. And that's really the brains of our organization. Debbie, I think you you made a really good point there. A lot of people, they clam up when they hear the word system because they don't quite know how to identify it. They they know approximately what it is, but it it gets frustrating. It looks too big. But you I think you use the proper term there. The simplest form of a system is a checklist, just a written checklist. And all you do with your CRM or your computer is you just make it digital so more people can access it. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And Items that are dependent on other items. For example, there's so many things that have to happen when we launch a new listing, and I believe we never have a second chance to make that great first impression, especially with online marketing today. So there's so many things that have to happen before we can go live you know, from our photographer to having those edited, to having them put in the right order so that a client can walk through the house by the way we've organized those pictures and get a good feel for it. The addition of our new Matterport camera that does the 3D photography and how that all works. And and people get nervous about the system, how to create it, and it's I've learned how to do it. I, I take anything that we want to do and break it down into its components. So for example, if you're going to if we're talking about a listing property, so however you have that lead, however it comes in, whether it's a a call, um, however it comes in, there are so many things that have to happen from the moment you know that there's a possible listing to the time you show up at the front door. So you simply write all those things down on a legal pad. Then you go back through and you put them in order. What number them? One, two, three. Then you go back and you write how is that done? Is that a to-do? Is that a phone call? Is that an email? Is that an action item? And who can do that for you? Because I don't have to do everything, and I'm not the best at doing everything. So what are all those things, and who can do them? And then what is the priority level? Is it a high, low, or medium task? In other words, if all of a sudden our market speeds up dramatically and days on market goes from maybe 90 as a normal down to 20 days, so it's real simple. All we have to do is take a look at that plan and say, okay, in a faster-paced market, we don't do this, this, and this. Or if the market's moving from a faster market back to a longer days on market, you can simply take that plan and add those things back in. Thank you for walking us through how you put together one of the the plans, one of the checklists that you basically a system to accomplish a task, and then you add it together with the other systems to run the business. Did you say you're using Top Producer today to to manage that? We are using Top Producer today. I think we probably have 200 plans built because there's all different types. You know, on a on a transaction where you're representing the buyer. 
there's a couple of different distinct phases. There's the due diligence period. That's one section. And there's the whole financing section and appraisal. Then there's the countdown to closing. And so there are different focuses throughout those different pieces. For example, the 10-day countdown to closing, we want to really be holding our clients' hands during that 10-day period. There's a lot going on there. And that's when stress gets the highest. That's also the greatest opportunity to gain referrals is in that last 10-day period. So every segment of our business, even down to the fact that when we have a new person join our team or someone leaves, we have a checklist for that. We have a plan for that because if you get woken up in the middle of the night because your alarm's going off because you forgot to let the cleaning people know that you changed the alarm code, you pretty soon figure out that systems are the best way to go. You said that you have 200 plans in your program. You didn't start with 200 plans the first day you decided to put a system in place, right? I mean, it didn't just happen immediately. It happened over time. Exactly. Exactly. Those years when I was doing all the listings for our company, to take 125 listings a year, you have to have a system. And I needed to walk out of a listing appointment confident and being able to say, this is what's going to happen today, this is what's going to happen tomorrow, and this is what's going to happen the next day without me being the one to do it. I needed that confidence to be able to say that. And so I had to build systems. And so now where a lot of folks want to know what their assistant did during the day, did you do this, did you do this, did you do this? Our assumption is that those plans get followed and those tasks get done and we're, we get notified if there's an exception, if something didn't go according to plan. We don't need to know that of the 45 transactions that are in escrow right now, she did all this, this, and this. We need to know when there's a problem. Sure, management by exception. I'm assuming, just again, going back to people that are building out their system or improving their system, that the way that you find there's a problem with your system is something goes bad. Something doesn't work out, and you have to make a choice. Are you going to do anything about it so that it doesn't happen again? And I assume that's how you built your system up, is you were cruising along, and you listed 50, and everything was fine. And when you start listing 60, you started having some things fall apart or didn't happen. Signs didn't go up. Information didn't get in the MLS. And that's when you said, you know, I need to adjust my system. I need to add to it or add something in place to make it work. Is that correct? Isn't it that you build these systems out trial and error? Absolutely. And and we always test it on paper first before we build. It's really a legal pad. And I'll sit down with the people that are involved and we'll say, okay, what, here's what I think has to happen. What are the other pieces I'm missing? And then we put all those in, then we prioritize them, we, we come up with a sheet, we run it as a test on one, and then we build it and put it into top producer and we run it as a test again and we keep tweaking. And, and, and really, I think we started with those systems even earlier than at, probably at 50 listings. And the reason for that is that Joe and I are so different. Joe is an S personality, I am a D. And so... We very early on split our business, and I represented sellers and he represented buyers. And and that was an early decision back in the early 80s, long before agency was even an issue, because it felt so uncomfortable for me to represent a seller who said, you know, their motivation was to get the most money. And then I'd take a sign call on that and work with a buyer whose motivation was to get the least amount of money. Now, I'm not saying that dual agency can't be done, but it sure is difficult. And so Joe and I split our business early on 
And when we'd work with someone who wanted to build a new house, for example, and we represented the builder, we needed to coordinate the sale of their existing home with the build and closing on their new home. We needed to be sure we were saying the same things. Joe needed to be able to say, Deb will do this, and I needed to be able to say, Joe will do this. And so that's when we really started sitting down and putting together the best case scenario. If we gave this client the best possible service, which resulted in the best possible outcome to meet their goals, what would that look like? And so that's that's how we start. Let's go into that other area, and that is you're running a family business, you and Joe. And so a couple quick questions to, to set that up. Did you and Joe start working together in real estate from day one? No. No. Um, I started in the business, and I had a lot of success. And I remember back in those early 80s, we we had an opportunity to bid on selling foreclosed farmers' home administration properties. There had been a subdivision that had a lot of soil sediment problems and it had been closed, shut down, boarded up for years. And the government decided that this was affordable housing and they were going to come in and they were going to pressure grout, pump concrete underneath these slabs to stop this cracking and then refurb these houses. And most agencies wrote a prospectus and submitted them for approval, and I did it as a single agent. And I was awarded that bid, and I had 97 properties to deal with in our county that first year. Our county is larger than many states back east, so I needed help. And and I said, Joe, please come and help me. So he he joined me, I think, in probably, I think, in... uh, in 1983, and I started, I think, in 1980. So, yeah, three years into the business, he joined me. And then, again, as I mentioned earlier, success comes to those who get in front of the inevitable. As the market changed, we shifted, and we learned different skills in order to represent different types of business. Go ahead. Well, you you were asking me about the family part. It's actually interesting because our daughter works with us as well. So it's not just Joe and me. It's Joe, me, and Melissa. And Melissa's in her early 30s. She went to school and has a degree in visual communications and came to work with us after we took our company back after selling it once. That's another story. And we came back and took our company back and she joined us then to help with marketing and soon decided that she wanted to get in the sales end of the business. And at some point in the future, not immediately, but at some point in the future, she'll take over. So right now, we have a three-person management team that runs our company. You've mentioned the dispersonality for you and Joe. What is Melissa? Melissa is very interesting. She originally tested as a CI, which is very interesting because it means perfection is critical and loss of prestige when you make a mistake is really a problem. Today, she tests as a DC. So she has adjusted. (laughs) But she's coming to the fold with you. She has. She has. And it's an interesting dynamic. You know, being a strong D, you just want to say uh, right-hand lower corner rule, which is who who signs the checks makes the rules. And I, I very much these days am, am learning how to uh, 
how to share decision-making with the other two members of our management team. And really the way we do that is we all have a primary area of expertise. So Melissa's focus is really marketing. That's her expertise. And she really supervises the HR portion of our company payroll, things like that, time off the actual staff. Joe's first line of responsibility is our physical plant, all of our computers, the networks, our systems, our equipment. He does all of the training for our new agents when they come on in terms of working as a buyer specialist. And he's the first line of defense for any contract or customer issues. As an S, he's a very calm influence on consumers who are little worried or upset about something going on in a transaction. And I'm sure that never happens in your business, right, Mike? Never. (laughs) Never. Okay. Uh, My focus is really big picture leadership. I'm also, I also serve as a designated broker. So legal issues, contractual issues, anything like that lands on my plate and big picture focus, leadership direction. Where are we going? Uh, As you know, I'm also a a certified coach, so I, I spend about 15 hours a week coaching other brokers from North America. Basically, the way you've worked this out is that each family member is responsible for a different part of the business. That's right, and we meet weekly, and each of us brings an agenda. So if you know, if Joe is saying we really need to upgrade our phone system or we need to invest in some new computers or we need to up our speed, I mean, we defer to him. That is his area of expertise. Melissa is the same way in terms of marketing. And then the areas that I mentioned are are my responsibility too. And we each do sell and list some, although our job really is leveraging ourselves and bringing business into the team. You and Joe have been working together for a really long time. He came in within the first three years of your business, so it's a partnership you've put together. I assume in the early days, you might have stepped on each other's toes a little bit and and you learned to split the responsibilities. Is that true? It really did. You know, I, I have a belief that two people working together can do the work of three if they're if they're organized, if they're systemized, if they know what they're doing. And and that's the truth. And so finding the areas where we're each best, finding our highest dollar productive activities, what we do best, what we do naturally, what we really enjoy, that really allowed us to separate some of the responsibility. But even in those early days, I can remember if Joe would sell one of my listings, write an offer on it. And I, and I can remember in particular one night, and he's saying, you know, if your people are that cheap, they just shouldn't be writing on this house. <laughs> and he's saying, well, what do you think? There's gold buried in the backyard. And so that was kind of <laughs> it was kind of an early awareness for us. And we made the decision that when we walked in the door, business was over. And it's something that we really try to impart to our team members. You know, Set an ideal week. If you had the most ideal situation during the week as a realtor, what kind of hours would you work? Set those hours, set an ideal week, and then when you're off, be off. There really isn't any real estate emergency. I mean, yes, we've had fires in homes. We've had sellers die. We've had accidents on the days of closing. But in the real scope of things, are there really any real estate emergencies? There really aren't. And 
You know, it's not rocket science. We're not doing brain surgery here. So you can set those times. And so for us, when we walked in the door, we were off. It was really important for our daughter, too, because if we go somewhere and our phones were ringing and we were talking real estate, she'd, she'd say, can't you guys ever stop talking about real estate? And so raising a child in the business, and that's what we really did, we needed to learn how to turn it off. And so we did. And, and, and as a result, the quality of our interaction with our clients was better because when we were on, we were on and we were totally there. We weren't thinking about being off and vice versa. So that, that's just kind of one of the rules we have. We, if we need to have a business meeting, we have a business meeting. We call it a business meeting. And then when we're done, we're off. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. What other rules did you put in place to make it work so that you can work with your spouse at work, but at home you're back into family mode? I think that we're always right. We're both always right because we have our own perspective. So it's not the power struggle anymore. And, and, and somebody, I'm trying to remember even who told me this once many years ago, that most disagreements are really power struggles. And so what were we really fighting over? We could make a win, even if it was the same transaction, be that a great seller got to move from a great house and a great buyer got to buy a great house. So what really is the disagreement? Does that, does that make sense? Sure, sure. Well, I think it makes sense when you, you said the power struggle issue, especially for a D, you had to step back from that and look at a bigger picture. Absolutely, and, and, and D's like to win, and, and it's, it's something that's pretty interesting. D's have no problem asking for a discount or negotiating, where an S might think that that's just being so rude. And I think really learning the DISC personality styles and honoring that in each other helps that as well. Joe's process for making a decision is totally different as an S than mine is. You know, as a D, it's ready, fire, aim. And sometimes I have to slow down. And that, that's a great balance for me. And, and, you know, sometimes Joe maybe doesn't make a decision as quickly as I would like. And I think between the both of us, we have opposite perspectives and opposite ways of doing business and making decisions. And when we move towards center, it's a better decision. You also mentioned that you brought Melissa into the fold. How, how long has she been with you working inside the business? Well, she's going to tell you that she was slave labor, that we made her live stamps <laughs> and put labels on postcards early on, which is true. And uh, we didn't make her. She, you know, she earned her allowance that way. And she was always involved. And we used her in a lot of photography and ads and things like that in those earlier years. So she's really grown up in the business and she's heard all of the, the different things that, that we've talked about. We would take her to conferences because we, we just did. She'd go to conferences with us. And so she really grew up in the business. Now, an active selling role, gosh, I think she started selling back in maybe 2006, 2007. So that's about nine years ago. 
Did she go off to college? Did she go into another line of business before she went into real estate? Well, we thought we were growing our own web designer and uh, graphic artist because she went to college for visual communication. So when she graduated, she came back and worked with us doing our web design, doing our marketing. And from there, she really moved into lead incubation because it was a natural. If we do this on the internet, let's see what our response is. And so as the internet lead business really started to heat up in the mid-2000s and she was doing that work for us, we could see an instant result from her making changes would result in more inquiries. And so after a while, the inquiries were burying our sales team. There were just too many inquiries. So she started doing lead incubation and she really worked as a customer service person unlicensed at that point to be able to help people say, did you find what you needed? Maybe I can set up a search for you. Can I do this? And so that was really her start. As well as a teenager, she worked for us during the summer. So Melissa really has worked every position in our company. So it's a great way to prepare her for someday taking over our company. She grew up right inside the business. You mentioned the bus would stop right there and she would get off after school and come in with y'all and, and see everything. She's been around it. She's been submerged in it. There's no better mentoring program than what she's gone through. You also mentioned that the actions she took inside the business in the early years when she was young, that you paid her an allowance. Did you pay her beyond the allowance for the work she was doing inside of the company? We did, although she didn't know it at the time. We always had some great financial advice. And so one of the ways, we paid for her college in a couple of different ways. One, we bought a rental property when she was very young with the purpose that when it came time for college, that house would be paid for and we could sell it and use that equity to to send her to college. So we did that. We also, early on in our career, set up a, a simple IRA plan. And so... We used Melissa in a lot of photography. You remember those days of, you know, we don't work alone and don't don't sell your home alone. And we, we used her in lots of different photography. So we paid her as a professional model. And all that money that we paid her, she never knew she got paid. We just put that right into her simple IRA plan. So that was a way to build some assets for her and to pay for college. So she had college money plus possibly even some retirement money that starts at a super early age and it's just going to compound and be huge by the time she gets to retirement. That was very, very smart. And anyone listening who has small kids, they could do the same thing. You said that you hire your child as a professional model. You said you did it through a simple IRA. We did. We used a simple IRA plan at that point and it was because we could put away money every year and have the company match it. And we also offered it to our admin people, but it, it, it didn't cost a lot of money in administrative fees and it wasn't a defined benefit plan. So I think, gosh, at the time that we first opened it, I think the annual amount that you could invest was $6,000 a year or something. There, was a, there were some lower limits at that point. But if you think about it, when your child is three or four and you start using them and photograph it and you have them start doing some work, if you can put $6,000 away for them for 15 years, it really does compound. Great idea. Well, any other advice for someone who's thinking about either working with their spouse or working with their child about how they should set it up at the beginning so it goes smoothly? Absolutely. You know, I, I think it really starts first with the individual. And 
I've mentioned a couple times dollar productive activities, and that was a coin, a term coined by Dr. Fred Gross, who I worked, we both worked with um, in helping focus on our business. Highest dollar productive activities are those things that you get paid the most amount of money for. And a typical realtor is going to get paid, these are their their areas. It's listing saleable properties, number one. Number two, negotiating or saving a deal. Number three, working with qualified buyers. And number four is actually number one, it's lead generation. And however you do that, you know, whether that's internet leads, whether that's cold calling, whether that's working in your sphere, whether that's business to business, lead generation. So those are the areas primarily that realtors get paid. I like to add a fifth thing if you're the head of a company and that is long-term vision, business planning, and leadership. And I think that that's really critical. So going back to your question, those would be some things that I would sit down and think about. First of all, if there were two people going to work together, because a lot of people will do the same thing. Two people will go on a listing appointment. Two people will work with a buyer. That's not really leveraging the extra person as easily as or as effectively as you could. So then I take it one more step, Mike, and I say, in the scope of your business, answer these questions. What is something that you absolutely love to do? Number two, what do you do effortlessly from others' perspective? And then what pays the most amount of money? And if you can intersect those three, that's the area that you should be focusing on. So for me, I have the ability to walk into a property, see how it can be marketed effectively, and I can also understand who the most probable buyer is and imagine how do we reach out and present this amazing property to them. So that's a gift that I have. I also have the ability to help people understand the benefits of making adjustments in the way we present their property. So where people have trouble saying you've got to declutter, you've got to improve or fix, I have no problem explaining that and I, and I do it in a way that people have called me a velvet hammer. I deliver the news in a very soft way and give them permission to choose and I make it so effective that they want to do it. So let's say Joe, Joe has the ability to sit down and talk with someone and based on the conversation about what they love to do, what's important to them in their life, what are their hobbies, what do they do on the weekends, how do they live at night, who cooks, he can usually identify the property just sitting there that is perfect for those people. And he seldom shows more than a few properties because he's able to really understand that. Melissa, what is Melissa able to do? She is able to see things from a longer perspective in terms of an investment for a buyer or how to position a property for a seller. She also has an uncanny ability to understand online marketing and what's effective and what's not. So when you really identify what you're good at, what you love to do and what seems effortless and brings in the most amount of money, there's natural areas of focus for you. So you divide that up and then you don't fight about it. I don't try to pretend that I know more than Melissa about online marketing. I don't pretend that I know more than Joe does about our network and the bandwidth that we need, etc. So I think when you start out that way and know who's responsible for what that helps, then also set your schedule and agree that you're going to not 
work every night and every weekend and that when you get in the house that the business is off and put in a date night. You know, Joe and I know that we didn't marry each other to be business partners. We married each other because we love each other and we have fun with each other. And so real estate is not the main ingredient of our life. Our life is and our business funds our life. And those values that we have and guiding principles create the culture in our office, which is really about living a great life, focusing on abundance, serving others, and making your business fund your life. We want our people at their kids' soccer games and going to school to watch their programs. We want that. Um, And so that's part of the culture. Basically, you want to focus on your strengths first, and I liked how you brought in that you want to intersect that with a dollar productive activity and your strength. You didn't focus on the weakness. You focused on the strength. I think that's really valuable. I believe that, Mike. I really believe that focusing on our strengths is the key to everything. Who cares about my non-strengths? Those are the strengths of someone else. And if I know what my desired dollar per hour rate is, then those things that cost less than that dollar per hour rate and are an easy accomplishment for somebody else should be delegated to somebody else. That's another key part of the component. A lot of people, when they're either building a team or they want to start building a team, one of the big challenges that they're going to start bumping into is staff longevity, having team members stay with you for a long period of time. You seem to have achieved longevity with your team. First of all, let me confirm that. Do you have people on your team that have been with you a long time and how long? I do. And we're really lucky about that. The person that's been with us the longest started as a buyer's agent with us and and she's been with us 19 years. How did you make that happen? What, What did you set up so that you'll create longevity with your team so you don't have constant turnover? That seems to be a problem with a lot of teams. They get this constant turnover and it really is disruptive. How do you create longevity with team members? That's a great question, and and you're right. We do have, I think the the newest person on our team has only been with us for a few months, but before that, most of our people have been with us years. I have admin staff that have been with me 8, 9, 10 years. I had an office manager for 16 before she moved out of the area. So how do we create longevity? I think one of the key parts to this is when we add additional salespeople, meaning buyer specialists, they come on learning how to work with buyers first. And I think the training that we provide and the backup that we provide for them creates a safe nest for them to really learn. We don't compete with our salespeople. If they're at a school program and they're out of town and their client calls in, first of all, they probably know that they were out of town and know to contact us if they need something. Joe or I are going to pick that up. And we're going to support that with our team members. If one of my listing partners is having difficulty explaining market conditions and that we need to reposition a property in the marketplace, what we all refer to as a price reduction, and they're having trouble with that, I'm going to meet with that client and my agent either on the phone or in person. So we're there to support our our team members. Those are our clients. When we serve them, then 
they can serve their clients more effectively. So I think it's the training. It's the part that we don't compete with them. And I find that a lot of folks that come to me for coaching, particularly around teams, Mike, they have this expectation that they hire somebody and that person should do their own business. They should get their own leads. They should do their own business. They don't bring them into the team system. We provide all of those systems. We want our people to spend as much time with their clients as possible. So all of the paperwork, all of the behind the scenes things are handled by admin and we work together as a team to provide that high level of customer support. So I think people feel like we're in this together. We win together as a team and we lose together as a team. If there's a commissionectomy, we share that. It's not just the team member's problem. So I think it's that focus and that support. A commissionectomy, what's that? (laughs) <laughs> like it's a commissionectomy. <laughs> Every once in a while you have one of those transactions where something just didn't happen exactly right and, and you can complain about the small dollars or you can do what's in the long-term best interest of your client, solve the problem and move on. So when you basically have to put part of your commission into the transaction to save it? hmm Sometimes that stuff happens. You know, we have some guiding principles. I think I've mentioned a few of them. One of them, and my team members know this, whenever there's a question about a transaction or what should happen, we step back and we say, what is in the long-term best interest of our client, number one, the company, number two, and us individually, number three? On the question of longevity, I've got to assume that the longevity question begins on day one with hiring the right person. How do you go about finding the right person to put on your team? That's a great question. First of all, we always hire before we need the person. We don't wait until we're in trouble. We're looking down the road at what's going on. When we know that our people are at capacity with the business that they currently have, we know we need to hire somebody else and start that training process because it takes about six months to just get the mechanics down as an agent, and then it takes the next year and a half to learn the finesse of the business. And so really defining what the need is first. Now, if we're talking about an admin person, it's a matter of writing down the specific tasks that that person does. We don't say, oh, the receptionist, they're going to answer the phone. Now, we want to go through and really understand all the parts of that job because they do more than answer the phone. Once we have all those tasks down, we're prioritizing them. So what is the most important job of the receptionist? That is to be the director of first impressions. That's to make whoever calls on the phone feel like we are so happy that they called us. Whoever walks in the door to feel welcomed and appreciated. So right there, I know that's the most important task of that person. They have some other clerical duties to do and some other duties. But the most important thing is that interaction. So I'm going to go through on each one of those tasks and I'm going to score the personality style that's best suited for that person. Is it an S? Is it an I? Is it a D? Is it a C? And so that's going to tell me right there that that is one key part of the interview process is the disc personality style. People can learn to do tasks that are not part of their natural behavioral style, but it's much more difficult. And we spend most of our time at work, so why make it difficult? 
why not put people in areas of their strengths? So that's key. The second is we don't hire on the first interview. It's usually a four or five interview process to make sure that the person that we're seeing is consistent. You know, do they only have two professional outfits? Could they really only be on time and look decent for the first two or three interviews? Are they consistent all the way through? And at each one of those interviews, I drop a piece of homework and I want to see, do they pick up on that? Do they do that? For example, if it's somebody that's going to join our team as an agent, I'm going to say, so if you had a buyer that we gave you that was coming in this weekend and these were the parameters, what properties would you show them? If they come back to the next interview with that information, I know they paid attention to me. And even a brand new person, a person with a brand new license, can go on Zillow or trulyorealtor.com and pick out some properties. So I'm dropping little pieces of homework and seeing if they pick up on it and move forward with it. So the interview, the disc profile, checking social media to see how they present themselves to the world, We give a skills test, and I'll talk about that in a second. And then we really check references, and we make sure we call the place of employment, not just the person that they gave us and their cell phone number, because it could be anybody pretending. The skills test is really important, Mike. I once almost hired um, a person for a a position where they'd have a lot of computer responsibility because they told me that they were a trainer for a major bank in terms of their software for 13 years. That was true. This person did train for a major bank. But what I found out through doing the computer skills test was that's all she knew how to do. She didn't know how to do anything else. She just could train on that (laughs) proprietary software. (laughs) And I would have made a huge mistake. So we do the skills testing. And and we we give them a couple of different assignments, an Excel assignment. Can they write a letter? We give them a situation. And then can they do a simple flyer that would go on the door? And we're looking for a couple of things. We sit them in an office where another administrative person on the team is there to assist them if they need it. Because we want to see what happens. Can they really do the things they said they they could do? How do they think? You know, what happens if they don't know how to use something? Do they get frustrated? Do they go online and look for help? Do they ask someone else? How do they handle frustration if they can't figure something out? And then most importantly, can they write a letter? Can they write a complete sentence that sounds professional? Because so many people can't do that these days. I like how you're you're getting a lot of background. You're really digging into who these folks are. Three to four interviews. When you do make a decision and you bring them in, are they on probation for a certain period of time? They are, Mike. They're on a 90-day probationary period, and we have a very precise training mechanism. They start with different people on our team, and they learn something new every day. They'll, they'll get be in training for a couple of hours that day, and then they get to practice it. So a typical training situation would be if we were going to teach how to access information in, in MLS, of course. We would first give an overview of why that's important, how they would be helping folks on our staff. We would show them how it's done. We would ask them to take notes. Then we would have them explain what they heard, look at the notes, tell us what they heard. We make any corrections there. Then we give them an opportunity to try it. 
and then we correct, and then we show them where in their position book the real instructions are. So we're using all different forms of learning. We're using visual learning, auditory learning. We're using the kinesthetic part where they're actually writing it. If you engage the hearing, seeing, and writing, people have a tendency to retain that much more. So they're training that way. And then we have a 30, 60, and 90-day review period. And 30 and 60 days are pretty informal. I've already had feedback from the rest of the team on how that person is doing. Are they doing well in these areas? What areas do they need improvement? And we know the formula for giving feedback is four to five times positive to one negative because people hear negative and focus on it. And confidence has so much to do with performance. So I'm going to always start on what they're doing well and give specific examples. You've mastered this really well. You've taken control of this. That's done well. This person said they really appreciated when you did this. And so I'm going to give four to five good against every negative. Then I'm going to tell, so I'm going to give them some feedback. I'm going to ask them how they feel that they're doing. And Once I lay out some of that positive, they relax a little bit and then they can honestly give me feedback and say, you know, this is where I'm not sure. This is where I think I need some more training. I'm going to give them specific things to work on for the next 30 days. And whoever else is involved in the training or supervision is going to be involved in that. Usually Melissa fits in on those reviews because she's in charge first line of HR. And then the last thing we're going to ask them is what do they need from us to do a better job? It might be as simple as a person has a bad back and if we can adjust their chair or adjust lighting, it makes it more comfortable. So that's that's what we do at 30 and 60 days. Usually 60 days is where you really see some areas for improvement. And a lot of people will give good feedback right in the beginning, but they won't do that 60-day review. And then 90 days is really a written review at that point. And it's, it's, again, using the formula of four to five positive to one negative. And hopefully we should have dealt with all of the issues to that point. We're going to put it in writing. There's usually a payroll adjustment at that point. And then they're off probation and they get some benefits like vacation time, sick time, holiday time, those kinds of things. Let's look at a big picture of your team. Could you walk through real quickly for us and outline who the members of your team are? Sure. So remember that we own the brokerage and we're in a small community. So everybody that works in our office works on our team. And that's because the recovering control freak here wants to control the consumer experience. Okay. So we have our director of first impressions. That's, that's who you're going to meet when you call us or when you walk in the door. And she owns the lobby, which means that she's the one that allows mortgage people, salespeople to get past it. And she's the one that's responsible for making sure that it's a welcoming area. And that comes down to how does it smell? Do we have refreshments out there? What decor is out there? I mean, she owns that lobby. And that's, that's her position. Sitting right behind the lobby, behind a wall, but being able to see out the window is our transaction manager. Tracy's been with us, I think, nine years. And she backs up that front desk and she watches 
you know, at lunchtime, she'll pick up that phone or if our phones are going crazy and it's still ringing, she'll pick up the phone. And the reason for that is that she knows our clients that are in the transaction and she wants to make sure that, you know, they're, they're handled correctly. So that's in our main building. And then our main building, that's the center area. Half of our our um, offices on one side of that main lobby are set up for our buyer team. The other side is for our listing team. And Joe sits right off that main lobby. That's his office, so he can kind of hear everything that's going on. So right now we have five buyer specialists. One of those is, is brand new, and she's been on our team about 45 days. She's still in training. That's our buyer team. And on the other side of our main hallway then is our listing partnership. Team. And so it doesn't mean that if you're a listing agent, you can't work with a buyer or vice versa. If you're a buyer agent, you can't work with a seller. We bring people in on the buying side and teach them that first because it's my opinion that you can't really represent a seller well unless you've learned to see a house through the buyer's eyes. So that's kind of our training process and anybody can work with any client that they have a referral on either side, it's just that our leads are funneled in either to the buyer side or to the seller side. So that's our main building. We, we own our L-shaped commercial building. I, along with our admin and property management, sit adjacent to, it's another suite that's right next to our main sales suite. And so I'm there in, in my suite as our property management department. We have one full-time licensed property manager and uh, she is supported by our listing manager who works out of Oregon. And Kathy's been with us, I think, maybe nine years, ten years. She, yeah, I think almost ten years. She worked with us originally in Arizona and did such a great job that when she wanted to move back to Oregon, we wanted to keep her. So she's set up so that she can just pick up her phone and she's tied right into the office system on computer and on phone. So Kathy does all the bookkeeping for our rental property owners as well as does all the listing management places, all of the listings, enters them into MLS, handles all the back end and on that. Also working in the property management department is our property specialist and REO specialist. We did a lot of REO properties a few years ago and those are thankfully dwindling down. But that department needs a lot of support. Those girls need a lot of support there in how we manage and interact with our REO clients. And so that person there manages the REO properties, the conditions, all of our repairs, inspections. She also assists in property management with property condition, repairs when we're in between tenants. She also manages our sign person. And because she's got an accounting background, she does our first line of bookkeeping and um, items there. Then the other person, two people that we have on our team, one is part-time. She's our photographer. We're lucky enough to have a young lady in college whose parents are professional photographers, and so she grew up in that line of work. And so we actually have a professional photographer on staff. She works uh, part-time while she's in college. And then we have a field inspector for our REO sign man that um, also works with us. So that's our team and our organization. Debbie, earlier we were talking about the seventh level. You've achieved the seventh level in your business, and that when you and Joe go out of town, the business can continue to operate without you. Which of these folks starts running the organization when you step out of town? They all do. 
they all know what their responsibilities are. And the reason we got to this point, I think I mentioned earlier, in 2006, we had an opportunity to sell our business. We weren't really looking to. Things just kind of fell in place, and we got a great offer, and we took that offer and planned to retire. We bought a great big house on a lake up in northern Wisconsin, and we moved there. And a lot of things happened that first year where the market tanked. There were some things going on with the partners that bought our business, but within a short period of time, we knew that we were not going to be successful. So we actually came back in less than a year and took our company back. And at that time, Joe and I made the commitment that we were not going to give up our dream lake house. And so for five years, we spent half of our year in Wisconsin and half of our year here, and we would go back and forth every three or four weeks. And that taught me how to run a business remotely and that I didn't need to be there all the time. I could take a call from a client that wanted to sell the house, talk to them on the phone, pick up the phone and bring in one of my listing partners in Casa Grande and we could talk about the property and my listing partner would go out and do all the physical work. So that's when I really learned how to work remotely and how to use technology and set up systems to another level so that our business could run without us. So we we are lucky enough to travel quite a bit, and so our business happens that way all the time. It's no different if I'm in the office versus out of the office. People know their level of responsibility, and if there's an issue that can't be handled, you know, they're going to send me an email or they're going to send me a text and say, this is the situation. Here are the options. Here's what I think we should do. What's your input? And and that came, Mike, from a long-standing change in how I dealt with people on the team. Most team leaders get addicted to the drama of being the white knight on the charger that gets to charge in and save the day. We get addicted to that and, and, and we actually get fueled by that. And, and so taking that whole emotional charge out starts with helping people learn how to think. So instead of a team member coming to me and saying, here's the situation, what should I do? They know they have to come to me with, here's the situation, here are three options, here's what I think we should do. At which point I can add to that, I can question why they think that's the best decision and we can agree on a strategy there. And then I'll ask them, are you prepared to do this and will you let me know how it goes? So absolutely, they have a solution, they go off, they do it, they come back and tell me the results of it. And so now they've learned so that if a similar situation occurs in the future, they know how to deal with it. And that's how you empower people and build leaders so that you don't have to sit there answering all the questions all day long. I want to make sure I understand this. So when you go out of town, you're still connected to the office. They're going to still come to you if there's an exception or a big issue that comes up. Otherwise, they're they're running their own show. But there's nobody on the team that stands up and that would become the new, say, head of the organization at that point or the person that everybody would turn to? Yes and no. I mean, there's very few times really when I'm totally out of touch. I mean, we spent a couple of weeks in New Zealand at the beginning of this year. We've been to Bali. We've been to Europe. And, you know, so you're on a totally different time zone and it's not an instant reply. I have two associate brokers on the team. So 
they're very happy to assist one of the agents if I'm not immediately available or Joe is not avail- immediately available or Melissa. So they they have that ability right there to assist. Melissa's going to sign checks or make final decisions if necessary, if we're not reachable. My closing manager and Trent, they all own their positions. So everybody... I, I, does it sound weird that there's not a figurehead that steps <laughs> up into the, into the decision-making mode? I mean, everybody kind of knows what what the expectations are. And when you stop and say, here's the situation, what's in the long-term best interest of the client? Well, it's this. And how do we get there? Here's a couple ways. It helps people solve problems. And then it's a matter of bouncing off an idea. Here's the situation. Here's what I think. In the past... I've done this. This is what I... So it's a natural progression. Sounds like Melissa is being groomed to become the next team leader down the line, and she will take over that position. Is that who people turn to if you're not available? Yes, if I'm not available. But Joe and I are pretty much... I mean, we're pretty much instantly accessible through a text. And they'll say, you know, they'll send me a text and it'll have 911 in the subject line or urgent, you know. And and so Joe and I are pretty responsive to that kind of a situation. We don't get 911 messages often. I guess I'm just curious, if something were to happen to you and you uh, say you had to be in the hospital in a coma for three weeks, would the business operate? without you there or without you being able to contact them? Absolutely. And in fact, as a coach, that's one of the things I work with my people on, that we create a fire drill. We say, if we had to take you out of your business for six weeks, what are the things that need to be delegated and how, how would that work? I like people to run that fire drill for a week before they go on vacation if they're going to be gone for a while. Pretend you're not here and let the team run and see what things drop through through the cracks. That, I think that was what was so important for me when I had to have surgery and be out of the office for six weeks. I, I couldn't do anything at that point, so I had to learn how to effectively delegate and empower other people, and certainly with us being in Wisconsin, that's the case. And yes, Melissa will someday take over the company unless she chooses not to. Debbie, are you profitable? Sure I am. And if you're going to ask me percentages, I'm not going to tell you that either. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> <profitable>. <laughs> well, that was my next and I, question. I want, to, so. I want to talk about that for a second, Mike. I, I, I find that agents, when they get to be super successful, they almost feel guilty about it. And I don't know if you've run into this. And, and I believe that when you build a business and you build a team, you deserve to be compensated for that. So this is the structure that we have within our company for our management team. If Joe or I or Melissa personally sell a property or list a property, have a transaction, we're going to get paid on that just as though we were an agent on our team, the same kind of splits. So that's one way. Another way is we have a salary based on our management responsibilities because I'm committing so much every week to management, training, whatever, I get a salary for that. So does Joe, so does Melissa. And then Joe and I also get paid as owners of the company because when you own a company and you invest in a company, you expect to get a return on that or why would you put out that risk? So yes, we're paid in those three ways that I just mentioned and 
that's one of the biggest things that I see about shifting to the mindset that you own a business, you don't just have a job. And that is if you were going to invest money in a business, wouldn't you want a return? You invest in a rental property, you get a return. You invest in a retail store, you get a return. So, yes, we're profitable, and that's how we're paid. Debbie, what drives you? Oh, that's a great question. A lot of things drive me, Mike. I, I, I'm a person that seeks excellence. I, I'm a recovering perfectionist. I love to learn new things. I love to master new things. So for me, I, I, part of my personal mission statement is to both nurture and challenge myself and others to be all that we are. I, I think we came to earth on a mission, each of us, and I don't need to get lost in, in the woo, but I believe that we each have a purpose, and, and my purpose is to help others grow and challenge them to not go through life unconscious, to live a life based on, on what they want. For me, that's passion, that's joy, that's family, that's mastery, that's lifelong learning. So um, I'm always learning, I'm always changing things, and in our company, they laugh and they say, if 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 change bothers you, this is the wrong place because I thrive on it. We we take every portion of our business every year and look at it and say, how can we make this better? Why have you been so successful? I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky. I have a great husband who has a similar viewpoint on client service. We're lucky enough to have a great daughter. Her husband is an amazing man. We love him too. We have a new grandson, six months old. We're really lucky in our family unit, and we're really lucky with the people that choose to work with us in that they have a similar desire to do what's right for other people. You know, profit is important or we wouldn't be able to live and we wouldn't be able to support the families of the folks that work for us. But profit is not our driving feature. It's service. And when you serve others effectively, the money comes. So I guess that's what I'd have to say. Integrity and service is why we as a company are successful. Debbie, you mentioned that you offer coaching. Could you give us the 60-second the rundown of what you do with coaching and where people could learn more? You bet. You know, in my career, I've been lucky enough to coach with many different people, and there's different coaches for different sections of your career. And, and I became a certified business and life coach in the mid-2000s because I wanted to help people grow. And that's what I do. I work with primarily team leaders, broker owners who want to grow a business that's bigger than their individual practice. And most of my work starts out with people that say, you know, I want to double my production next year, or I have this real problem on my team. And so we deal with the broken bones first, the things that are a problem, and then we really work on work-life balance and having their business be created in such a way that it allows them to lead the life that they choose. And if someone listening was interested in your coaching program, what would they do? They just email me. They can they can go on my website and look at it if they'd like. It's debbyyost.com and it's Y-O-S like Sam, T like Tom. They can look at debbyyost.com and if what they see there appeals to them, send me an email. The easiest email is just debbie, it's D-E-B-B-I-E at Yoast 
com, and just tell me that they'd like to talk to me about coaching. And so we just set up a time and we have about a 20, 30 minute conversation to see if we're a good fit. I'm not the best coach for every person. You know, somebody that needs basic training that's, that's a new agent, I'm probably not the right person for them. I want them to get their training underhand and then let's fine tune the things. So that, that's how that would work. Debbie, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? The very first thing that I would tell them to do is to sit down and create a contact list of everybody that they know and get that involved in some sort of a CRM right away. Get, get the folks that they know into the CRM. I would tell them to set up a system where they're going to invest in themselves. 10% of the money that they earn, I would say, please earmark to invest back in yourself. And of course, set up some money for a savings plan and, and for some for your taxes. But invest in yourself. Start reading books. There are some great books out there that really help people starting out. Clients First is a great book. 7L, The Seven Levels of Communication is a great book. DISC, They Need to Learn DISC. The Platinum Rule is a great book on that subject. I'd also suggest they pick up the book called The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod to allow them to get focused. And that's where I would say to start. I would hope that they would find a brokerage that has a strong training program. I think that's so important. I mentioned earlier, I believe that it takes six months just to learn the mechanics of our industry, just the bare mechanics. I think it takes another 18 months to learn the finesse. And when you put the finesse on top of the mechanics, that's when you become a master and you help people more easily make the right decisions for themselves. And and you make it easy for them. And, And real estate, buying and selling is very stressful. I think it's number eight and nine on the stress scale with 10 being death of a spouse or child. So it's a stressful situation and that's our job is to help make it less stressful. Debbie, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Absolutely. Oh, Mike, I should have said they should listen to podcasts. (laughs) They should listen to interviews because that's something that I did. Gosh, I, I started listening to Star Power interviews the first year they came out. I drove around with tapes in my car all the time. That was back in the days of cassette tapes, not eight-track tapes, but cassette tapes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Debbie, I've come to the end of my questions for the day. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? You know, I do. If you focus on the needs of your client first and make these three things be your goal, to put them in the best negotiating position possible, to get them moved on time, on their time schedule, and to make the transaction as stress-free and pleasant as possible, they're going to succeed. Well, Debbie, you showed us the importance of focusing on the needs of our clients first and how we create longevity and loyalty by serving our team members' needs as well. You shared how to create harmony in a family-run business by clearly defining roles and letting each family member take ownership and run their part of the business. You've achieved the seventh level in your practice by empowering your people 
developing systems and using technology to keep the ship sailing smoothly. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 64 luxury homes last year worth $44 million. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.